0: We didn't tell you, but it's called the the tipsy turps tonight.
1: Right. I have tea. Jonathan is just drunk on life. Man, I only have water. If I had known, I would have gotten organized. Always come prepared. Never be unprepared for work. Cheers. You guys are already cheering me up. This is good.
0: Cheers to that. Cheers to
2: that. Sarah now that we have four
1: now we're four this is like with family you know you don't have to pretend anymore
0: depending on the family but let's not go there we should have had
2: you on earlier you're definitely one of us
0: what is happening
2: we'll explain later i can neither confirm
3: nor deny anything but i get you that's exactly what i meant thank you very much yes of course into it. I'm interested. I mean, who wouldn't?
2: (laughs) Right, guys, professional face.
0: Who's doing the introduction again? Welcome to a very special episode of Troublesome Terps, the podcast about topics that keep interpreters up at night.
3: It is our Christmas special, our year in review for 2019, and we have a very special present for all of our listeners.
2: Not only do we have our usual annual showcase of the Troublesome Terps year, but we have a big announcement to make.
0: From this show onwards, there will be a fourth Troublesome Turp. <gasps> and we will no longer be a mannel. Yes.
3: Oh, my God. But let me tell you, you've heard her twice on the show already. She was on episode 36 telling us about how interpreting is, in fact, a woman's world. And you heard her a couple of times during our live episode from Geneva. And I believe also in the intro to another episode. So maybe it's actually three or two and a half ones. Who knows? But it is, in fact, you might have already guessed it, the one and only... Sarah, Sarah Hickey.
1: Hickey. Hickey. <laughs> that Wow, what an five, introduction. Right? <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs>
3: yeah, Welcome, thank you, Sarah. Guys. Welcome as the fourth Troublesome Turf. Yeah,
1: I'm honored uh, and super happy to be here and uh, to yeah, break up uh, the trio and yep. <laughs> introduce some more diversity.
2: Exactly. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. Yes. It's about time, I was going to say. But break up the trio makes you sound like Yoko Ono to the Beatles. <laughs> yes. That's a joke
3: Fair that enough, very few know?
2: people will get. Well,
3: yeah,
0: yeah just, just the old folks around here. Not you know.
3: everybody might say it's a bad thing, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. But
2: we, we all realise, and we've been talking about this for a while, and we all realised that we wanted Troublesome Terps to represent more of interpreting life and also as soon as we had Sarah on the show once she blew us away with how natural and how great she was and we just decided it was time for a fourth host so we're looking forward to to the reaction from this we would love to see what people think of this our first four person episode four
0: host episode yeah yeah that's it and we we thought we we might look back just a, a teeny tiny bit um because you know we're we're getting towards the end of the year. And that's where you look back at things, and maybe not just at this one year, but um, maybe even a bit further back. Exactly. Yeah,
3: Yeah, because we are moving in such a new time for the Troublesome Terps with a new co-host, maybe even a new look. Who knows how that's going to shake out? But, uh, you know, it's just going to be a new era of the Troublesome Terps. So we thought it was going to be a really great time to take a look back into how we actually got started and also have Sarah chime in as... Up to now, an external person as to how she perceives the podcast. When so, I think that's going to be really fun. Hopefully, right, Sarah? Don't hold because back. now you're one of us. So. Don't hold yeah. back. Don't 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 hold okay. back. Just, just let go. Let it rip. <laughs>
1: No problem. Exactly. That's uh, me, my most natural <laughs> thing. So. Okay. That's why we love you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I'm, I'm not even sure if we've ever talked about the sort of origin story on the show,
2: I think. I don't know. We've talked about the origin story. We have. So we have. It. Okay, it okay. so
0: we don't need to do that again. At
2: once then. or five times, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that you know the videos of the episodes don't go online, because all you'd have seen would be my feet. <laughs> yeah. I don't think
0: I've even I even have video of the of the very first episodes because yeah.
2: We did not have video we did back not. then. Thank yeah. Jesus. I've kind of volunteered that one day we're gonna do like a kind of clip Show not of not of us because we have enough clips of us, but it would be great. It would be great to have like an episode where we sew together some of what people say. We've had a couple of clips on before. We haven't had an A. No A. Ask us anything. A. M. A. For a while. We did have an A. M. A. Yeah, we haven't had one for a while. We haven't had one for a while. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, So so if anyone wants to send us um, any. Really controversial questions like "Is it okay to wear tartan trousers in an interpreting booth?" We'd be happy to answer them. Absolutely.
3: Also, if you send us a lot of very controversial questions for Sarah, that will be even better.
1: <laughs> yes, I'll take them. Don't hold back.
0: Yeah, we didn't say we were going to answer them, but we'll take. we we'll take.
3: <laughs> I mean, it's twenty nineteen. Who answers questions? But well, we do oh yeah yeah. yeah, we do because that's why that's why we're controversial exactly because we answer questions there you
1: go yeah I I do feel like that especially maybe uh, on the conference interpreting side of uh, the overall interpreting market there's a little there's a lot of this you know tread lightly uh, happening Mm. I definitely felt this already as a student yes Yes. yes yeah, getting so so many recommendations of like having to be so careful because it's such a small community and there's so many rules and you don't want to make the wrong impression and say the wrong thing to the wrong person accidentally. And so I feel like this is also a really also it's a big hindrance for entering the market because you're so uh, afraid. feels mm, <laughs> yeah. like uh, on tiptoes. Um, yeah, but also it can absolutely, I think, prevent progress when we if we don't talk about it. And you guys are. Not afraid to talk about it. Um, So, you know, all the, yeah, like like what maybe other people say you shouldn't say or topics you shouldn't address. Like, you know, the big scary one, like uh, one of my favorite topics, remote interpreting or machine interpreting. Because, I mean, you at least got to address them. You don't have to like them, but you can, you should talk about them.
2: Right, right it's been interesting for me some things that were controversial aren't controversial anymore I don't think mental health is controversial anymore which is good and can I just say we need to deal with the interpreter mental health thing because it's going to kill us otherwise Um, definitely but yeah it's 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 interesting to see how I don't know about you guys but I was really interested to see how Geneva went Geneva which was the live event in October
0: yep, the big conference.
2: 2019, and as, as conference. well as us doing the town hall, I was fascinated at the reception that we got from the people there. Now, obviously, everyone knows Alexander Drexel anyway, because he's probably one of the most famous interpreters in the world. So Very true. Kind of roll out the red <laughs> carpet for him. Yeah, I'm you can cut roll your up, eyes you know as that, much as right? you want to. No, no, you're, you're not going to cut this up. <laughs> but yeah, it was interesting to see how much, I hate to say respectability, how much acceptance we got there. And part of me thought, do we need to dial this up again? <laughs> That's actually it's interesting
3: that you said that because I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking, are we too palatable at this point? Because no, no, because you know, in the beginning, it was actually about kind of shaking up the status quo and talking about the things that nobody else was going to talk about, and kind of you know, not causing a ruckus, but causing a ruckus. <laughs> you know, it was just it, it was it was kind of about. ruffling some feathers and just talking about the things that nobody else would talk about. And I feel like over time as we've become more grown up, more respectable, more, I don't know, more known, and we've had more respectable, more grown up, more known people on the podcast, I feel like the podcast has taken a different direction than we initially intended on. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's different than it was in the beginning. And I wonder... If sometimes it should just be the, well, now the four of us, of course, just talking some mess about the interpreting market again, just about some stuff that really grinds our gears, just, (laughs) you know, talk about some
2: stuff. Can I also say that that one of the things that really sold me on Sarah joining us was on the live show, you'll hear Sarah's comment about remote interpreting. And yes. the straight down the line, this is what's happening, this is reality, deal with it approach, I think is one that I want us to keep in the podcast, but we have to remember, and I think we'll come back to this later, and I think all four of us can, can say something about this, there is a cost to being that level of honest. Um,
1: definitely there is
2: so for example I've just pulled up the list of episodes on my, my my browser episode two we looked at stress and burnout and if I remember rightly I told what was my first burnout story I've now had more since then but anyway um, the, the first story where I felt um, professional burnout and, and what that meant now I realized that you know anyone who hears that now I've lost any vestige of being perfect ever not that i ever wanted it but you know for us to deal with you know stress burnout mental health it takes people telling stories about stress burnout and mental health and there's a cost to that because it does it is um it is it can be difficult to tell those stories but if they don't get told then no one realizes that everyone's suffering the same anyway nobody tells Mm -hmm. them so yes paying the price again
0: yeah I don't, I don't know if it's, it's necessarily about paying the price, but I, I think there's a real value to being open and oh, I guess raw is one of those words, but I, I think it's a good word actually. Because I remember we we mm. had um, we've talked about this on the show before is that we have these bar camps in Germany that we organise for the for the community to. To learn and to exchange and to just get together and talk about stuff and I
3: Which will also be in Brussels soon. Yes,
0: very soon indeed. Um, and I have I have this very vivid memory of, of one of the bar camps where one of the sort of more experienced Colleagues um, mm. was really sharing a lot about her episodes yeah, of yeah. burnout and how she sort of worked through all that and how she copes with it now and um, and I remember just also looking at the faces of the younger interpreters just listening to the story and um, yeah it, this this is, has been impressing me uh, a lot over the over the years it's been a while now but um, still think about that and I think there was a real um, a real value to that and i don 't think it's 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 been negative for her I mean it was it was a, it was small, you know it was not a a big audience necessarily, but
3: um, yeah. right, no, but you know the news travels fast amongst interpreters, especially, and I think oh gosh, yeah, I think it was just a very honest moment, and i don 't think as freelancers it doesn't even matter if we 're interpreters or not I think as freelancers oftentimes you're not you don't feel like you're entitled to your own honest moments of weakness because you always have to be perfect, you've always got to wear that perfect armor of invincibility you know, even if we're, I was actually just um, talking to two colleagues of mine today at another job and it's you know, now the winter time, everybody's getting sick everybody has the flu, but as a freelancer you kind of still schlep yourself to work you put in like five NyQuil's, you put in like two Advil's, you put in like another (laughs) ibuprofen on the job and you're like, okay, I've got to do this one last job and then it's the weekend and then I can get sick, I can't Get sick right now, I mm-hmm. can't get sick. I can't be sick right now. Yeah. I have this one other job because you don't want to lose the money, you don't want to disappoint your booth mate, you don't want to put on the stress on the organizing interpreter or the client or whoever. Like, you don't want to do any of that because you're going to be a huge inconvenience to everybody else, or so you feel. Yeah. But we're all just human, and I think just talking about these human experiences, whether it's um, that colleague at the bar camp talking about the burnout, or you, Jonathan, sharing about sharing your experiences, I think it's just very important to. Sometimes take a step back and remember that we're all just humans. We might be pretending to be superhuman at any given time (laughs) in our jobs, Uh. and we might be superhumans at a particular time in our jobs, but we're just humans for the most Most part of the day. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, most of the times. So I think it's just very important to just remember that, especially at this time of the year when everybody's kind of… Depressed. And the sun is gone. It's cold and gross.
2: And I think also from the point of view of if someone like said, I mean, I remember, and I still have this now that you know, there's almost this feeling that if you ever leave freelancing, you must be letting someone down. And it's like, no, if you leave freelancing, it's because you've got another job or you're doing another thing. It's not a big problem. Um, and I think if we can work on our episodes at making sure that everything's completely guilt-free and that, you know, it's absolutely okay to train as an interpreter and then become whatever. It, it's not, that's not the issue. Uh, the issue is creating a profession and creating an environment where everyone realises that, you know, at the conference in Geneva, you had researchers, you had trainers, you had interpreters, you had a neurologist. And we're all people who are excited about interpreting. Well, that will do. Um, Sarah, did you feel as like someone who is is an inter- a trained interpreter but an interpreting researcher? Did you feel completely at home in that room, or
1: <laughs> no?
2: Did anyone? Not at all. <laughs> really? Because I know when I when I've done more more research than interpreting, I kind of have to say to myself, I am still an interpreter. It's okay, I'm still an interpreter.
0: <laughs> you belong.
1: Well, no, I didn't feel excluded in that sense at all. Um. Yeah, so first of all, I I did really enjoy the conference, but for me, it was very different. So I've been to a bunch of conferences recently for NIMSI for, um, you know, the other side of the industry and for research and on the business side, where there's generally a really friendly atmosphere in the room, you know, everyone's chatting with everyone. And it's uh, about... Uh, innovation, of course, people are also trying to sell, but there's a, a lot of interesting um, conversations. And I don't feel like there's as much, um, people don't hold back as much. That might just be my impression. But so in Geneva, then, while it also turned out to be a really great conference and I met tons of super nice people and uh, I am an interpreter and I you know, didn't feel out of place in that sense, uh, I felt like it was all a little bit more distant and uh, higher up or something like there was a little bit more of a barrier and also in terms of what was maybe being talked about or not talked about and that's why I at some point just went okay well I gotta say something you know as in, (laughs) um, I don't know I I sometimes have this tendency to go um, you know it and I'm just gonna do it and either people will like me or they won't but you know as long like I don't you know I'm not trying to upset anyone on purpose but i also uh, think that some things just need to be said because it doesn't just because you don't talk about it doesn't mean it's not there mm. you know so it's just better to address it
2: and look at where that got you yeah <laughs> huh? oh, this no, is great
1: i'm on top of the world right now
2: <laughs> uh. I, I think that's the thing is, if, if we can keep this as the Just Say It podcast, there is another question that we put is, do we have a responsibility to be less troublesome? And I think actually our responsibility is to, to whom? be one place. Yeah, I think right. I, I think we have to keep being the one place where people can just say it. Um, yes. And the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the great thing is, you know, Alex Gansmine and I are consultant interpreters. So if people don't like us, it's fine. We don't have to work with them, it's not huge deal. Um, Alex Dreitzel works for the Commission, so hey-ho, so long as he doesn't upset Florica, he's fine. <laughs> you know, it's... It, it, it's... It, and Sarah works for Nimsy, so I'd imagine your bosses want you to be troublesome, given some of the stuff you're writing. Of course, we had them on the show um, the other day. Know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, so, so yeah, if, I think maybe our responsibility is to be the Just Say It podcast and not get sued by Nike. <laughs>
1: I think that's a pretty good model. Yeah.
0: <laughs> was this th- was this sort of the, the first big interpreting conference for you, Sarah?
1: Well, yeah, it, it all depends on uh, how you look at it, I guess. So I, for NIMSI, I went to Gala and I went to Lockworld and I'm going to NTAF now in a week. Um, but for me, like there's almost, when I look at interpreting now, there's like two sides for it for me. Like they're interlinked, but like, you know, I come from the... Uh, academic side with the masters and you know and then there's the institutions so I feel like there's a, this whole side of the institutions and AIC and the academics and that is in that sense that was the first um, conference that I went to properly on that side and then there's the other side that is more you know the the business the private sector, um where we like for example gala i mean it encompasses a lot but for me i would classify more in that direction even though it had a really really good interpreting track for example um yeah it has a completely different vibe to it and also the discussions are completely different it feels like two different worlds sometimes
2: that that really concerns me i mean the academic world is in a sense its own can be its own little bubble if people aren't careful Um, I'm used to the academic world being quite tied to, if not the business world, then at least the kind of government central purchasing world. And I I thought when I was in Geneva, I, I thought it was interesting because it felt to me it was a very kind of, in some ways it was a very high level conference, but I think all of the four of us agreed there were things there that weren't being discussed or were being discussed in a very interesting way that would have been discussed differently anywhere else. Certainly even at like the, the other professional translation and interpreting conferences that I've been to. Um I don't know about Falcade, but certainly ITI and some of the others are more openly this is business, deal with it in a lot of senses. Um and the, the, there's more of a bit. connection to the the, the the business side of, you know, you have to have a fantastic quality product, you have to market it properly. Yeah. Certainly in the in the interpreting But drugs. I
1: think it doesn't, you know. For me, I think it doesn't all there, There's a there's something to be said about, you know, in the end, the market decides, right? Not really us, but also protecting our own uh, working conditions, for example, and you know, quality standards and finding that kind of a you know level, which that 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 often interlinks anyway. But I think it's more important to allow for thought-provoking discussions of and whatever way. And I actually uh, spoke too soon there earlier and I was at another conference from more the academic other side of the industry for me, not just in Geneva. Uh, I was at Discuss Interpreting last year. Paris, yeah. Paris. True. Yeah, at the ESET campus. And that, for example, I mean, okay, I was also presenting there, so I'm not trying to say that was amazing because I was presenting. Um, but it was... Overall, I thought the atmosphere at that conference was really nice and a lot more thought-provoking, I thought.
2: I, I had a message from someone during the Geneva conference who was following the tweet saying, are we just discussing things that people should know anyway? <laughs> I don't think that was fully the truth. And I, and I have to say outright, I love the Geneva conference. It was an absolute honor to meet so many great interpreters and meet so many people. But I think because we had a lot of people who were very aware of their responsibilities, the discussion was very different than if you're in a room of people who basically are only responsible for themselves. Oh, absolutely. I I don't think it was just the, I don't think it was the, you can just say it conference. No. Um, and to to an extent, on the one hand, that's good training. Uh, we need to be in, uh, so I have been at, I was recently at an export forum and I realized that I had to be careful with what I said there and actually you need to just say atmosphere but we also need to train ourselves that you know if you're going to an export forum you don't need to be telling people the ins and outs of you know recent debates and interpreting they don't need to do right. that and if someone asks you a question that relates to recent debate you need to shut your mouth and give them the answer that's relevant to them um but that takes training and I, i've only just gotten good at it in the past year or so because i'm naturally someone who likes to talk and who likes to tell long stories i don't know if anyone's noticed that, really, <laughs> notice. who, who knew that? <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, it, but it's interesting.
0: Apparently, there's this um, still a bit of a need to debrief the, the Geneva conference. But um, I mean, that was only one of the episodes that we did this year. So maybe let's let's move on to some of the others as well. But, um, the the very first one in 2019 was actually the 2018 in review.
2: <laughs> I, I remember us getting to January and going. Wow, we did a lot, and then this year I'm looking at it going. If we, if I think we did a lot in 2018, 2019 has been crazy.
3: I mean, the the good thing, the good thing about 2019, I think that actually took a lot of our plates, was that we didn't have to plan the live event ourselves. I think the fact that we put on our own live event in 2018 was still a monumental task. Yes, and the fact that people still bought tickets for that boggles my yeah, mind totally. to this very day. So thank you very much, still to this day, whoever bought any tickets. <laughs> um this year <laughs> you know who you are we didn't put yeah you know who
2: you are so it's your fault we're still on the air so to, <laughs> I, I, if you would like another one let us know hello at yeah
0: we definitely got to do
3: this well, again who knows we might already be planning something no, nobody can say um but anyways i'm sure you'll be the first to listen to hear about this to listen definitely. to our announcements anyways so episode 32 was our 2018 in review. So I don't think there's much more to say than that that was uh, what we did in 2018. Yeah, exactly. If you want to find out more about that, you can listen to all of the 2018 episodes on our website, Troubledurps.com.
0: Exactly. So there's just a, a subtle, subtle... Which you should do there. anyways. Yeah, exactly. The the next one, though, was a lot of fun with Corinne and Eve. And and I mean, for all of you who know Corinne McKay and Eve Bodo from... Uh, the ATA, you know, they're a, um, a troublesome do I was going to say they were definitely a lot of fun to hang out with and, oh, yeah. and discuss things. I, I remember there being a very uh, joyful <laughs> and jolly mood in the virtual room that we had together. That was a fun one.
2: But, I mean, that was that was great fun to have, and it was another podcast collab. Um, that seems to have been a theme this year as well. Um, <laughs> we did two yeah, of those. It, it yeah. I, I, I've yeah. been really pleased at how, at how many how many other podcasters we've done collabs with, um, and I, I think it says something about our industry. You know, we can all talk what's bad about translation and interpreting, but it says something about our industry that there's such a collegial atmosphere mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter whether whether you're the president of ATA with a podcast that I don't know how many people listen to or you're interpreters with a podcast with a remit to try and just say it. We can all work together and record stuff together. That's really encouraging about the industry and the, or sector.
0: And the, <laughs> the interesting thing to me was also that there, there are now... So many different podcasts about translation and interpreting, which was different, I think, when we started, because that was one of the reasons why we did it in yes. the first place is that we thought, well, you know, there's a couple of things, but um, that, there's not there's not really something that we – I mean, there's something missing, I guess, is what I'm trying to see. So we just thought, well, we'll give it a try and see if we if we can fill that, that gap.
3: I think the big one was the ATA podcast, wasn't that it? That was kind of the biggest one that was out there at yeah. the time.
0: I think so, yeah. And there was um, marketing tips for translators already, um, Teswiti. Right, but there of course, wasn't really yeah, yeah. there wasn't really anything specific to interpreting, as at least as far as I can remember.
3: Mm.
2: And now there's, uh, you have Sevesia Scucha, you have. I'm sure there are others as well.
0: Yeah, there's um, quite a few and, now. Yeah,
2: and. I need to find some more. Send us your list of other interpreting podcasts to listen to. That'd be fantastic. But from what I can tell, each podcast has got its own focus and its own flavor. And it's amazing how you can get podcasts with quite a kind of narrow focus that are really getting more and more episodes together. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, I'm really pleased to see the diversity of the industry. And I don't think that just because there are loads of interpreting podcasts now that it's time for us to retire. <laughs> No,
0: and I think because everybody There's brings <laughs> brings like a different a different perspective to the table, which is interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. And then the, the next one we did was we called it the crystal ball of interpreting, which is which was kind of a funny episode because it was improvised. We didn't do a lot of prep for that one. We just sort of got together and and you know thought we'll we'll talk about this and
1: brought some beer. Uh,
0: I don't know if <laughs> there was any <laughs> beer involved. May have been wine or cider. I don't know.
3: It might have been yeah, <laughs> some, some sparkly
0: stuff, who knows? Um yeah, but that turned out to be a fun one and um apparently it struck a chord, so a lot of people were listening to that one.
2: But then but then episode thirty-five, we showed that we, we have our business hat on. Yes. And we had Florian from Slater dot com and that was that to me sounds like the it was, it's almost like the first in a run of episodes that we had. Uh, was it this year? Yeah, because we are globally speaking later, where we were really getting into what Sarah calls the, what did you call it, the commercial or the business side? Yeah. I think so. And and that that's a, an area that I think we should explore further because there's a lot to be said for hearing from those kind of people. And, and Florian's view is just, he's got the bird's eye view of bird's eye views, I think, you know, apart from NIMSY of course.
0: Uh, no, but it was interesting also to hear about the, the backstory of of Slater, which I didn't know about. So, that, that was interesting to, to hear as well. So, if you haven't listened to that one, go back and do check it out. And that brings us neatly actually to episode 36, which we've mentioned in the introduction, which was the one about um, interpreting being oh, who was that a with? woman's world. Woman. I don't know. I think it was… Um,
3: I don't know. Ah,
0: something with S, I think. Rhymes with Hera… Oh, Sabine. No. <laughs> no.
2: I, I think it was... Simone. Was it with some Irish lady? I
0: guess. Yeah, it yeah. Was, was
2: definitely with some Irish lady.
3: Yes.
0: Yeah.
2: Who's
3: that Irish lady?
0: It's I funny, guess. though, because I mean... Yeah, Sarah, gets a lot. I, I think we mentioned that in the episode, Sarah. There's a, there's kind of a funny sort of it's a small world story behind this because Rachel Ryan, who also studied at Galway, NUI Galway, she wrote the. F- she wrote her master's thesis about sort of the gender aspects of interpreting, which then got picked up by Camille and by you, and then finally, enough. Rachel was the. F- well, you can tell the story better than I. So. go <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah so uh, Rachel um yeah she did the masters in Galway um wrote her thesis on the on men's motivations to become interpreters in a very feminized field now and um what their views are on the gender imbalance and uh, then she went on to become the interpreting researcher at NIMSI. And, yeah, then I got in, then I started studying at the same university a few years later and saw her thesis and thought it was awesome. And I wanted to do the female perspective, which I did. Um, And then, yeah, through talking to Rachel, I ended up uh, becoming the next interpreting researcher at NIMSI. So it went full circle. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's about as full circle as it gets even in a, a comparatively <laughs> yeah, small world like interpreting so that was that's kind of a fun fun story to that yeah to
2: have another researcher on the program always makes me feel nicer and makes me feel normal
1: ah well i'm glad <laughs>
2: you, you feel heard and understood
1: but <laughs> uh, in the end we're all just nerds here you know so
2: that's true in a different Actually, way
1: it's
0: to... a, it's a <laughs> true in our own Crazy ways, but that's a good segue to the to episode thirty-seven, which was also with a researcher from uh, Austria. In that case, which was Dr. Karin Reithofer, who's a, um, a good colleague and friend of mine. So I, I thought that was an interesting episode as well. And I think that's um, this was about English as a lingua franca, which is uh, a topic that's almost essential to interpreters, and it might be a topic that we're going to revisit sometime soon. I don't know. What you think about this?
2: Well, the knock-on from that is I have since cited her twice in things that I've written, one of which I'll talk about later. But um, yeah, she opened my eyes to an area of research that I wasn't even aware of. I felt it was really good for calming down any residual worries that people might have about us being turfed out of our job. Interpreters never retire, they just stay muted.
0: Okay. Moving right along... Um. The oh yeah. The next episode was uh was a bit special. That was your big moment, was...
3: Alex. Let's let's just be oh, gosh, honest. Yeah, That this, was your it
0: hit big, very close. to It hope. did
3: hit very hard.
0: It was a fun episode to do though because you get to you got to grill me and ask me all we kinds of nasty did. questions. It was
3: one episode when we were just. Uh, grilling you about any and everything that we wanted to know about working for the institutions is this true is that true do you guys have a gilded sweet <coughs> cladded break totally. room where people just come and massage your feet and bring you lukewarm evian yeah, water basically like,
0: like business it class. turns
3: out everybody this is exactly how it is <laughs> it turns out that you really basically once you've made it to the european union it's just like first class on an airplane that's pretty much the life that's it yeah that's it You might as well just give up.
2: Well, I I remember two things about that episode. One, I remember all the checks that had to be run to make sure it was okay. And I I, I also remember... Oh, yeah, there were lots of loops, lots of feedback loops.
3: I I don't actually know if we're allowed to say this.
0: No, I have to kill you now.
3: (laughs) All right, fair enough. I mean we've done a lot so this is this is this is, what this is as by good now. as it gets I mean, you, you, now Ella, you now have you now have you know sarah so <laughs> yeah she's actually going podcast. to do
0: the show just on her own yeah.
2: <laughs> from here on it's out
1: <laughs> <laughs> just on her own I love so it. long
2: <laughs> we're gonna be replaced by androids
1: i was actually very briefly for one year a student ambassador for dg link
0: oh i had no idea tell us DG Link is the European Parliament.
3: Oh, so you, so you're part of the mob. Okay, so we we have to take it down. We have to take it yeah, totally. down with us. Then that's right. Alex, I don't think our retirement plan works.
2: Let, let let me explain for people who are listening at home. We are all crazy. No, but the the the, the other thing that I remember from that episode. Now we're on bits that won't get cut out of the final recording, is that when I was at when I was doing my masters, I had this impression that institutional interpreters all were kind of you know looked after by people dressed as maids, bringing them coffee and water and stuff, and and, and the, <laughs> the notes would ridiculous. come on like kind of you know silk pillows and stuff. Um, it, and yeah. it was actually it was rewarding for me. And I'm going to phrase this carefully. It was rewarding for me to realize that the interpreters at the institutions, yes, they do have perks that freelancers don't have. But at the end of the day, they're still working their rear ends off like we do. And, and that was really reassuring because the impression you get whenever you listen to the recordings is they're just kind of gliding and nothing phases them and, you know, that they're all perfectly prepped and they've got all the everything laid out for them. Which recordings are these? <laughs> no, no. Well, when you hear like the live recordings from the European Parliament, everything sounds so perfect. What, what was the conference that was the translating Europe forum and all of the feedback that I saw on Twitter from translating Europe was oh, that was so lovely how amazing yeah. are the you, translators going wow interpreting is hard and I was like guys if you think that's hard
0: <laughs> no, no 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 can I just can I just say the the appreciation was mutual if anybody is listening <laughs> it's um it's definitely mutual
2: moving on before Alex goes right there. Moving straight
3: along, actually, is still staying in Brussels.
0: I was going to say that the the best way to become a good interpreter is good interpreter training, and that's what the oh, next
3: episode was. Nice.
2: Uh, see what very, I did there.
3: Very, nice. Very nice. transition.
2: We 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 compete for who can have the best segues.
3: Yeah, I was going to stick with Brussels, but <laughs> exactly. You you take the lead, Alex. It's good.
0: Yeah, because because this episode was recorded in Brussels. That's what it. Was mean, indeed partially yes. Mostly. Not that you were two,
3: there for the recording, Alex. Bit, because but... I have no idea what happened to it. I was... so, yeah. so
2: what happened was I showed my dedication to the podcast by recording an episode while I was on holiday. You were? I, I was on holiday. I was in my mum's kitchen.
0: I was going to say you were still sitting in a kitchen. It, just, it wasn't your kitchen, for a change.
2: <laughs> it was my mum's kitchen. No, but um, <laughs> I, I, I felt so... To to kind of give you the picture, Sarah and Alex, you know, so, so you've got me sitting in my mum's kitchen, probably with a cup of tea next to me, and the other side of the screen were, um Andy Gillies and Alex D. And if anything is ever going to find like uh, seem like the world's scariest job interview, that's going to be it.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, because we were sitting next to each other, sort of like interviewing Jonathan, and
3: yeah, and I that was looking,
0: like looking scary.
3: But then look at who was really getting interviewed. So I think you were guys were just. Lulling uh, Andrew, you know, into (laughs) a very... I don't know, good atmosphere for the interview, let's just say. In a that, way, it did, that, yeah. Too. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a great, fun episode. I think uh, uh, Andy said things that I don't think we've heard on the podcast before I found it challenging in places.
0: I loved his comment about the imposter syndrome, when he said um, how he was really suffering from imposter syndrome, and I said, well, you know, don't we all? It's kind of a thing in interpreting circles. And he said, no, but, you know, it's not imposter syndrome if it's true. That's what he said
3: i take issue with that
2: yeah Yeah, me too that's what he said and
3: i wrote that in i wrote that in the in the the comments for the episode i know nobody nobody saw this but maybe actually we can do like a whole episode on imposter syndrome because i don't understand the whole concept of it like i don't understand Mm. any of that let me rephrase i didn't understand anything about the imposter syndrome until we went to Geneva and until we had the live event because that's when I basically <laughs> had a mental breakdown and then Alex and Jonathan had to pull me back up and I was like what am I doing here and why does anybody yeah. listen to me and they were like look see this is the imposter syndrome and I was that like that was oh, your first-hand
2: experience oh, this
3: syndrome. is my first-hand experience
2: there, there are two syndromes that we have to cover in the same episode one is imposter syndrome and I think a lot of interpreters maybe apart from Alex Gansmeyer, suffer from imposter syndrome right the, the other Am one, I the only one which i have let us know the, hello at the other one which i have seen equally and is actually more dangerous and yes i did write about this in my upcoming book uh due december 22nd from all good bookstores wait you're writing a book i have written a book at, wait we'll talk about can that right <laughs> we'll talk yes i can write Scottish people (laughs) learn to write at school, Um, so the opposite syndrome, and I couldn't find the word for this when I was writing my book, but I found it now. It's called Dunning Kruger syndrome, and it's when people think they are more skilled at something than they actually (laughs) are. Like Donald Trump. (laughs) Oh yeah, Boris Johnson.
3: Johnson. (laughs) Who knows? I mean, like I don't. I heard someone say say this. Who said this? This this
0: is the sound of me cutting <laughs> tape
2: <laughs> just, So so we've got the just say it podcast, and then Alex doing the just edit it. <laughs> exactly. Yes, <laughs> just edit section. Of that's the, just the part I, I
0: really enjoy.
3: That's the pod. The, no, you were saying that's the pod <laughs> I really enjoy. <laughs> oh, God.
2: Let Jonathan speak, come I, I I was handing over to Sarah to talk about Dunn and Kruger. I've only ever have I worked with interpreters with Dunn and Kruger. I've worked with interpreters. I've had a couple of times where and I've I felt an interpreter was doing not as well as they thought they were doing, but they were still doing it. And you know, from the client's point of view, they were still doing a, an okay job. But Sarah, you were about to say something about Dunn and Kruger.
1: No, I wasn't. I was, if anything, going to talk syndrome. about imposter syndrome. Exactly. <laughs> I have never personally experienced the other uh, the other syndrome, but <laughs> just imposter syndrome, definitely. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, can we just kind of uh, yeah. define the Downing-Kruger syndrome for me? For those, for, for not for me, but like for those who don't know.
0: <laughs> those of you who don't know.
3: Yeah, those of you who don't know. You're
0: just, just playing <laughs> the advocate. All right,
2: so, yeah, so yeah, yeah. So, so if you if if you imagine that that you've got a, a graph, and at either end of the graph you've got people who are rubbish at something, and people who are actually really good. What happens is the people who are rubbish at something tend to overestimate their ability. The people who are good but not great tend to think tend to get imposter syndrome. And the end of the graph is people who are great and actually begin to realise, yeah, I know what I'm doing. The problem with and Kruger is that the people who are worst at something often don't realise they are the worst at it, and so you get things like. Uh, clients saying oh it's okay we've got someone in the house who can translate or we've got someone in the house who can interpret who thinks they're fantastic but who messes up badly or you get researchers thinking yeah I don't need to read research methods books I know what I'm doing and they write studies which are no good to anyone so imposter syndrome is actually Dunning-Kruger syndrome is wider than people think an imposter syndrome is right in the middle where you're actually good at something but you don't think you're really good at it um and I, um, it's fine, you know, if you're excellent and you know you're excellent, that's fine. It's when you're really bad and you think you have abilities that you don't have that it's dangerous. And I wonder if what Andy was getting at is that sometimes you are an imposter and you should admit that and you should work to deal with that because, you know, everyone can get better. Um, and And maybe there's a sense in which at times in interpreting, I know certainly I was super confident when I got my master's and I thought I knew everything. And you suddenly realize when you start doing jobs, you think, oh, I actually need to work on X, Y, and Z. And it's why I get really scared when interpreters say things like, if you weren't good, you wouldn't be here. Because that's not necessarily true, because it would be possible in certain environments to fake your way into jobs.
3: So I actually like that definition a lot more than the imposter syndrome. I think that's a lot more realistic. Hmm. Because I, in fact, have a lot of colleagues who think I know, I mean, they know for a fact they're good interpreters because otherwise they wouldn't be here. See what I did there? <laughs> and, um, but they don't think, you know, they're sitting there and they're thinking, oh, I didn't really do a good job today. Like, this isn't really what I'm doing. And I, and I think mm. that's kind of what, what that, I forgot the name already, but the, what the other syndrome was doing, the Downing-Kruger. Dunning-Kruger syndrome is kind of doing. And I think that's kind of that. Mm-hmm which I can relate much more to my life and my experience than the imposter syndrome.
2: Yeah. Personally, yeah. So so Dunning-Kruger... Dunning-Kruger syndrome is classically only used to talk about the left-hand side of the graph where people are garbage and they don't know. Well, then that's not it. But if you if you look at any definitions of it in books, it will usually give you the full graph and say, you know, you've got classic Dunning-Kruger on one side, imposter mm-hmm. syndrome in the middle, and then actual people who've who've dealt with it on the other. And you know, I I, I remember um, hearing and talking to Lisa Betsaselius, who's probably the expert on what expertise looks like in interpreting. And her definition of what it takes to, you know, if you like, get to the right hand of the graph, be excellent, and know you're excellent, is really interesting because it it really says that all interpreters are getting towards excellent. Very few of us have probably made it to being absolute expert interpreters. You know, apart from maybe the odd staffer um, or freelancer. That says something. Or you, well, you. The problem with freelancers is that. To build up expertise, you have to have a certain amount of deliberate practice on top of your focused work. And that's difficult to get to. I don't know how
3: many staffers have deliberate practice on top of their focused work. Well, that's a
2: whole other question.
3: (laughs) Exactly. So I think it might just apply to freelancers as much as it applies to staffers. So that's a whole other episode. Email us at hello at trouble tips.com if you want to hear more about that.
2: Like and subscribe. I was gonna say it would be interest. It would be interesting to know about the habits of interpreters, like how often do you practice, and you know uh, what should deliberate practice cover. But that is a whole other episode. We'll get maybe we should get Elisa bit on one episode and, and talk we definitely about expertise. Have to get her on at some point. We definitely
3: yeah. have to get her on.
2: Yeah. But
1: like, essentially, imposter syndrome is just that you know you you're afraid that more or less every minute uh, at some point people will find out that you're just a fraud, that you don't belong. Yeah, you'll get are. found
0: out exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm not sure I still, even though I have a PhD, when it comes to research, I still suffer from that at times, especially Geneva. When I was doing the presentation, I was waiting for someone to put their hand up and say, but what about? <laughs> um, and I, I'm not sure if anyone else kind of came across that, you know, waiting for someone to go. But you, you've you missed such and such. So what?
3: <laughs> oh, completely. Like, that's why Geneva, for me, was a minefield. That's why that's why I think I really had the first uh, feeling of interpre- uh, interpreter syndrome, <laughs> imposter syndrome. Interpreter syndrome. <laughs> could rename it? <laughs> Maybe we could just rename it. Um, in Geneva. But, you know, I just really felt, like, completely out of my depths there. And that's the thing that, for interpreting, I've never felt, because usually you're the only person in the room who knows what you're doing anyways. But then, if you're in a room full of interpreters, that's a controversy. And then you're right in a room. Is it though? Isn't it just like sh- a fact of nature?
2: We, we may have yeah. to you know, like, I'm, I'm
3: very happy to elaborate on this for 45 minutes, but I'm pretty sure that's just a fact of nature. But, you know, we were in the room with a ton of other people who knew exactly what we were doing because they were doing the same thing and then we were being interpreted at the same time Mm -hmm. and then we're being recorded and then we have to ask semi-smart questions and then it's getting recorded not only for the university and the interpreters but also for the podcast and then I was just having a basic mental meltdown thanks to the other two uh actually thanks to all three of you guys I made it through there Folks, folks, to all three of you, folks. Not even guys. We we
2: will, we will, we need to. I think we need to come back to the Geneva episode later because there are some things that that I think made that work that we haven't always acknowledged. But that was a later episode because the one after the one where I was on holiday, I wasn't there. That's true. And this is explaining why we need four hosts, ladies and gentlemen. Moving from one Andrew to the next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so, so many entries. Because, you know, if the. Can, can I just say consecutive interpreting scares the Rosanna out of me? Oh, okay. Or. French. It does scare the Rosanna out of me. I should probably pronounce that in French. Um, Love so, it. to have an entire podcast episode where you talked about the my least favourite interpreting mode, which is consecutive notes, I was glad I wasn't there because I would have known nothing. <laughs> but
0: we we had a bit of a field
2: day, didn't we, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> we loved it, it was the best
3: episode all three,
0: yes. of us, all three of us Are really uh, are really Enjoying consecutive interpreting Although we are yeah. sometimes really afraid Of consecutive interpreting yeah. And then we got to talk about technology as well Which was kind of yeah. the best of both worlds It was worlds. kind of a, a, <laughs> so. a,
3: a triple win Yeah, it yeah. was just kind of great I mean, honestly, like I know Nobody who likes interpreting I know one person who likes interpreting And she can't even say why she likes it I think it's always the same thing I think you it always consecutive, comes back to the right? fact that you...
0: Consecutive,
2: yeah. <laughs> I was going to oh, yeah, say... I I what we are we all doing love here? it. <laughs> also, yeah,
3: yeah. What, what, what are we talking about? Yeah. What, what, what are we... <laughs> Who likes it?
2: Uh, <laughs> I just, I just, I just S- Sarah, can I just say thank you for jumping in because I was about to and I thought, no, better let someone else do that. It's,
3: it's appreciated. We knew when we got you on board, you know.
2: It's, exactly.
3: It's good. Um, no, but you know... it's Just correct us. Do you so, Sarah? Since you're mm-hmm. new on board, and since you interrupted me so rudely and Sorry. corrected me even,
1: <laughs> I know. Do you like? Do you like consecutive interpreting? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, I can do it, and the club. I don't mind the whole thing with um, working with my, um, you know, relying more on my memory and standing up and talking right. in front of a crowd. But I hate note taking. That's my thing. Ah, that's, that's tricky. That's why though. I but don't so like do you them. do it on a? I can do it, but I don't enjoy it. It's uh, yeah no
3: so do you do it on a notepad or do you do it on like your phone or like anything cool, <laughs> cool. Or no like a, because like a when, uncool notepad uh
1: that's just no i'm a classic uh paper person uh first of all i'm just more comfortable that way and also when i was a student i was very very poor so i couldn't afford anything
2: oh yeah totally
3: oh yeah
1: yeah
2: Can I just say that I have two symbols down for my consecutive note-taking. When I need to write something to do with country or nation, I draw a rectangle. Oh,
0: I was going to say, is it a square by any chance? Yeah,
2: exactly. The other symbol that I have in in my consecutive notes, which is down pat, is I get my pen, I drag it down the paper until it rips, and that's my symbol for help me, I'm scared.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But does it? Does anybody ever pick up on that? That's the question. Uh,
3: Yeah, that's a good question.
2: No, I've never done it in public because I've just screamed internally. The 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 one time I had to do it (laughs) on a job, I was just like the The thing is, yeah, internally, (laughs) no one hears you scream. Right, I think that's the point, though. (laughs) Well, trust me on that job. They looked at my face and they went, "Would you rather do this (laughs) in smaller chunks?" "Mm (laughs) Yes, I love it. To be fair, to be fair, it was at a nuclear power plant and yes that that that's that's what we need to say <laughs>
3: oh yeah so we we just had like a thing today at the conference about chernobyl and how it's still oh. yeah how like you still have some effects of chernobyl so i'm very glad that you might have done smaller chunks maybe you did maybe you didn't but you know get the message across at a nuclear problem because it's 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 quite important, important for like the next <laughs> the next 50 to 90 years in the future yeah. who knows
2: here, here's here's how my day started. My day started with a welcome from the the guys at the plant, and then they said, "And before we do anything else, we have to go through the safety information. Please listen carefully, because it will be telling you exactly what ha- what you have to do in the so many different kinds of emergency that could take place." That's when I realised we're going to be doing this sentence by sentence. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Better safe than sorry.
1: Definitely safety first in a nuclear power <laughs> It's
2: like how many colours of alert do you need? <laughs> it's when they go through the colours of alert and I'm like, oh no, I didn't bring field tips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh
0: God. All right, let's talk about the last episode before this year interview episode real quick, and then we, we can move on to the more forward-looking stuff, which is going to We've be... We've got the,
2: two left. We've got Gen- actually, Geneva no. and Globally
0: Speaking. Well, we talked about Geneva quite a bit, so maybe let's skip that. But we did a yeah uh, another collab this year, which was a lot of fun with um, Renato and Michael, and Renato, funnily enough, being um, Sarah's boss at NIMSI. So. <laughs> yeah. So, so did you listen, Sarah?
1: Of course I listened.
0: Kind of, again, the so- Sort of the circle of life, whatever you want to call
1: it. Yeah, exactly. Also, Come so I was on the episode
2: again. a little
3: bit.
1: Yeah, I yeah. actually heard my name uh, being dropped by Renato there, which was very nice. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, you guys talked uh, naturally about a few things uh, that I was involved in at NIMSI, uh given that I'm... Uh, yeah, I think
0: what happened was that he he was recording the show with us and then sort of having dinner with you later. <laughs> Something like that.
1: Oh before before, before.
0: we were were Oh yeah yeah yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um we had a a client meeting in Milan and a few of the team were there and then he he went to record with you guys. So yeah. It's all connected.
3: Everything So what was the better part of the evening, huh? You can tell us. You can tell us because you're now part of the family. You are free to speak.
1: Do you want to know? But Nobody,
3: nobody's listening. If he
1: preferred hanging out with you guys or with me, is that the question?
3: <laughs> no. Would you prefer hanging out hanging hanging out with us or hanging out with him?
1: Oh, okay. I no, think that's the question. I can't answer that question. <laughs> no, I, she
0: couldn't possibly comment <laughs> on
1: I couldn't skirt, possibly decide because I love hanging out with you guys and I love hanging out with Renato.
2: Ah, oh, we love okay. you too. So, <laughs> yeah. what, what I was going to say though is the the episode with Renato and the episode with Florian to me is like part of a series that we should keep going. You know, like on on YouTube, like YouTubers have their playlists of, of similar videos. Like, you know, there are several really good playlists on the inside Interpreting YouTube channel. Um, I'm going to be building a new one soon. Like, and but subscribe. you know, if, we, <laughs> if if we were making a playlist of you know business oriented. Troublesome Terps episodes, I think that the Renato episode and the Florian episode really go well together because they're people in similar businesses telling us similar things that we need to hear. And maybe that is kind of troublesome for some interpreters to say things like, you know, Big businesses aren't necessarily your enemy, they're just trying to make money like you are. And mm-hmm. um, they, I think, from Renato and both Florian, well, more from Renato, we seem to hear about the fragmentation of the interpreting sector and how there are so many different segments, and how the companies that go big tend to go big by kind of getting these big government contracts. But that, you know, that's not the market. And I think, right. you know, by understanding that, I know historically interpreters have been anti big business. But actually, if we see this as they're just trying to make money and we don't have to adopt their practices if we don't want to, then that kind of creates more, um, we become more magnanimous and more accepting. And we can still demonstrate and disagree if we want, but at least we can understand where those decisions are coming from.
1: I've actually, so for the project that I'm presenting next week in Sweden, uh, I've interviewed people in like 12 12 different countries. Uh, I've assessed the interpreting markets in 12 different countries now. And I mostly spoke to either people from interpreting associations who also have their own company, like language language service providers for interpreting, uh, or just uh, language service providers. And lots of them were interpreters themselves. And... What I found really interesting was that most of them were genuinely concerned about, you know, when the with, when there's price pressure from the government side, budgets being cut again, stuff like that, that they're trying to not transfer that onto the interpreters, but to see how, where else they can cut costs in, you know, in other aspects of their business. Um, and that lots of them were actually trying to, you know, fight for interpreters to be paid better, which surprised me. Um, but also that being so I, I feel like yeah there's sometimes I'm not saying that you know there's definitely also businesses who uh, don't care as much about interpreters Um, <laughs> but uh, the something I think to keep in mind is that a lot of those businesses were founded by interpreters as well uh, who do genuinely know the market and the requirements and who care and who are sometimes just caught in the middle but the other thing to remember too I think is that it'll never be well, maybe it's a bold statement, but I, I, it'll never be the case that you know the interpreting market will just be occupied by big businesses. You know, so you don't have to necessarily work
3: Fingers for. Crossed.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, you will. I think as an interpreter, you can always have that choice still, whether you want to strike out on your own or go with really small um, providers or agencies or. Um, um, or you, if you want to join uh, someone big, you know, um, it's up to you, really. Um, we, the interpreting market is so crazy diverse. If point, anything, yeah. it's very, very uh, chaotic and there's lots of options.
2: I think I really learned this. I was at an event called Scott Export um, a couple of days before we recorded this episode. I've been to similar events like that. And what they've taught me is that two things have happened. One is that interpreters have been certainly in a a, a not necessarily mature market like most of the UK outside of London, interpreters have traditionally been scared to meet potential interpreting buyers on their turf. This was the first year that I went to Scott Export and there were that I wasn't the only language professional there. Um, There were like um, two other translators and another interpreter there and it was actually really heartening to see but usually when I go to these events that are aimed at the people who would buy interpreting, I'm the only interpreter there and that's Kind of not healthy. The other thing is that there are businesses of all shapes and sizes who are going to look for interpreting at some point. And I know maybe in markets like Germany and Belgium and France, you could just be a conference interpreter who does conferences. Certainly in the UK, no one can make enough money just doing that. But if you're happy to be a conference interpreter who does conferences, business negotiations, uh, helps clients out when they need you know, translation and interpreting and stuff, when you're happy to to be that rounded person, there's a lot of businesses who really just want someone to take the weight off their shoulders and say, look, we want to get into the French market. What can you do for us? If, if you're ready to, to be the language person, they can call on to arrange that and you can get the skills to do it well. There's a market for you because a lot of smaller businesses want someone that they're getting the same person every time that they know they're not you know in a giant or a giant call center somewhere that someone they can have a coffee with easily that's actually a a a good selling point for us if we get it right
1: well we always say as well that and i'm pretty sure renato mentioned that in the episode you know people like to sell to people you know in the end and that can you know be applied to different levels either as an individual interpreter or someone working in a company but in the all in the end it's all about you know have if you have a good relationship with someone you know people like to sell to people and if you can keep that relationship like um the classic question of i don't know i don't know if how much apply this might apply to guys or not but uh do you go to the same hairdresser every time i like to yeah and possible what would make you switch hairdressers?
2: Someone suggested to me recently that I should switch barbers, <laughs> and it it was. Are, not a great are you story, still friends? friends. <laughs> no, 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 no. no, no it, it's it's fine. The, the The barber themselves did a good enough job, but when you've I don't know about the two Alexis, but when I've built up a relationship with someone, I mean, it's going to be what fifteen minutes to cut a guy's hair. If that, but when you've seen someone, kinda of every couple of months? For going on what five six years, it it feels strange to go somewhere else, especially with you know an atmosphere in the barbers can be so weird. I know some people want their hair cut and they don't want to say anything. I like to have a good chat. You'd never guess. Um, but yeah, I I, I came home and I said, you know, that was fine, but next time I'm going back to my favorite one. <laughs> yeah.
0: But what what was the point of that question, Sarah?
1: <laughs> the point is that people like to go back to where they've had a good experience and if they have a repeated good experience and they even if you get one bad haircut you might forgive that hairdresser whereas if you go to someone else you know it was like oh they have a bad day if you Mm. try someone new and they make a mistake you might not come back but Mm -hmm. you know when you have an established relationship then you build that trust and you want to you know continue to work with that person fair
2: enough yeah that's true well, this is when we, we play a jingle and we say, this episode was sponsored by Interpreter Tank. When you're so annoyed, you want to blow something up. News story of the year. For me, there has to be a single nomination, and that was the suggestion that um, an interpreter working for a certain North American leader... Um, may have pulled a face at what she was asked to interpret. The story came out that that was obviously garbage, it was just edited video and stuff. And what's two things that are interesting about this story. One, interpreters got mentioned in the press and it wasn't to do with us being too expensive, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. And two, the interpreting profession struggled to find good words to react to the story and to each other. I think that's a a fair summary that I think most of us would agree on that we were all struggling to work out how to say what we wanted to say in a way that was sayable. I think there's no doubt that's news story of the year, although there, there are other big stories as well. But I think for me, that says a lot about how we talk about interpreting to each other uh, and to the wider world.
1: Yeah, but also purely um, from the standpoint of how viral it went, right? It was just, um, I thought when I saw it first, I was like, oh, okay, this is, a you know, uh, to me, when I'm going to be honest, when I saw it first, I thought it was funny, be- not because I thought uh, that the interpreter was uh, genuinely making this face uh, and thinking those things, but I thought she's making the face that I'm making as I'm reading this. <sighs> And so for me, it was like a nice illustration of like, oh yeah, that's the face that I'm making right now, even though she's just concentrating, but it was just more of an illustration, but I understand why it went so viral. I just didn't see it coming, to be honest. I was a little bit confused at first why it went so far and wide, but after spending a bit more time on it, I could see why.
2: Journalists like a scoop. I mean, two things came out of it with me. One, I think we need to work on... Uh, I liked the 1NT Hush initiative from Hugo Menendez. I think we need to be careful with social media and what we say in places like Twitter and Facebook, which basically are public. On the other hand, I realised yesterday almost, but also from that and from writing the book, don't know if I've mentioned it, um, that we need to work on interpreter PR. So I've started kind of a grassroots, deliberately rough and ready initiative, asking interpreters to find a way of sharing anonymized stories of the difference that they make. You know, a job at a time is ideal if they can anonymize off the top of their heads, off the back of a job. It may be that time-wise they don't want to do that. They want to, you know, wait a couple of months so no one knows which job they're talking about. That That's fine but for us to share anonymized stories and say we make a difference so that people hear the difference that interpreting actually make rather than viral stories taken out of context, mashed about, you know, we need to start taking responsibility for our own stuff. And so on the one hand, I've been asking interpreters to share anonymized stories of how they've made a difference at work. And on the other hand, I've been saying to interpreters, it's a really good idea to get into the rooms that you would be in, Sarah, where potential buyers, you know, big players, you know, companies who would look for us, would be, so that their impression of what an interpreter is is based on a real interpreter rather than on a story of the inter- of an interpreter that made the news. Uh,
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely agree on the side that it's. I find it's really important uh, that we all uh, somehow work more on what you can call kind of client education. Yeah, to highlight the value of interpreting and what goes into interpreting so that that can, because let's be honest, like most people uh, who aren't part of this particularly particular industry have no idea um, what interpreters do exactly. You know, they might think that we're translators at the very best and then don't really know what translators are either. Um and what the difference is between a professional and just a bilingual person, and so, and then especially at, at, a, at a time where more um, tools are coming out, which can be very useful. You know, it's just um, I, I do think that the yeah we have a lot more uh, educating. To do if we also want to uphold our uh, rates and work standards, um, because we have seen this go horribly wrong already in a, in a number of countries. And uh, I mean, it seems to come back around a bit, to be honest, because these things don't last, they keep failing. But in between, it's really bad for interpreters, and there's a, a certain negative trend happening at the moment again. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's definitely worthwhile to try and put the word out more to people who aren't maybe directly involved in the industry at first.
0: So, what do you mean by that negative trend, Sarah? I <laughs> mean, there's like a, a chain of sort of negative events, or. No, that's an honest question. I'm not.
1: Okay. Uh, no, so from what I looked into recently, people have. Um, one of the main complaints I've been kind of getting from looking into different countries was that there was like a, a lack of interpreters. And there isn't actually a lack of interpreters, but it's either, <laughs> the, but there, in some countries, interpreters are essentially leaving the profession. And not so much in conference interpreting. Um, this is more on the level of community interpreting, public sector interpreting, uh, yep. medical, legal, all those areas. Um,
0: that I get, yeah.
1: Yeah, mainly because of uh, rates that are being dropped and... um certain working conditions lots of interpreters uh, in some countries interpreters are being paid the same as cleaning staff and i mean there's nothing wrong with being cleaning staff but you know you don't need to go through this extensive training get your degree or as community interpreters you know they might travel to different appointments really far in certain countries you know with vast distances uh work at night and you know people have like second jobs and you know yeah we mustn't be surprised then if Maybe people run off to other professions where they can, where they get paid better and have less stress. Um, so, but then through that as well, the you lose a lot of people, good people as well, yeah. and then you're left with more like volunteers. Or uh, there's still this trend of people just using their uh, relatives or even children. Mm-hmm. Um, to interpret you know it's like oh yeah just if no one's especially if no one's paying for it um, that's another problem in some countries there's no legal basis for it and uh, countries yeah. that would surprise you as well and then kids are being used and i mean we talked about um vicarious trauma before as well and i mean uh children are affected by that as well of course um let's imagine you have to tell your uncle he's been deported or whatever you know there's lots of um those challenges and to me that's also to be honest verging on child labor and it is not illegal in most European countries so
0: it's yeah that's a fair point yeah there was a yeah Jonathan
2: yeah I think it's that is a negative trend I've seen I mean there's all sorts of political reasons for that and I think what really struck me, someone asked me today, you know, why don't you get a professional PR person to come in and, you know, teach people to do it right? I think there's enough latent talent and enough latent kind of love for interpreting amongst interpreters that really, when you hear stories of, you know, interpreters being paid the same as cleaning staff or interpreters having to leave the profession, no one else is going to tell that story as well as the person who's going through it. And No one else can tell the story of, you know, what it's like to interpret in a medical appointment where you have to tell a family that they're going to lose a loved one apart from an interpreter who's been there. Mm. And I think with these negative trends, and we all know about them, we all know about centralised outsourcing, we all know about people trying to use remote simultaneous when they really should have simultaneous interpreters there, using remote simultaneous to try and make interpreting cheaper by hiring interpreters in cheaper countries. and You know, it goes on yeah, yeah. and on. Um, the counter to that isn't to stand up and scream or to say this isn't working and shout in people's face. The counter to that is to learn to tell a different story. And I is why, you know, I am not just being obsequious, but I've loved seeing Sarah's work because you've taken topics that would normally get people either scared or not want to talk about, and you're beginning to tell us and the people who work with interpreters the story of, you know, a different story, a different approach. And maybe this whole interpreter goes viral thing to bring it back to the topic. This whole thing is a, a wake-up call to us that these trends are reversible. I loved what you said, Sarah, about, you know, they just come back around. These trends are reversible, but they're reversible to the extent that we decide that we're going to control our own narratives from now on. Mm-hmm. And we've got people like Nimzi, we've got people like Slater, we've got people who know what they're doing who can push stories out and i'm sure you know say if 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 you or florian saw a fantastic story about how an interpreter made a difference you would be all over it like a rash and that kind of there's a multiplication effect when we see each other's stories and share them that actually you can begin to drown out that stuff by sheer force of numbers
1: um yeah i mean um there's, I just, I just feel like the more you, I'm looking into it, you know, you're coming from I, I also come from the conference side and um, I mean, I'm not saying that there are no challenges in conference interpreting, but in comparison to other types of interpreting it seems like, you know, we have it pretty good um, there are so, so many uh, cr- I think crazier challenges, and not that you can't also get into extreme situations as a conference interpreter, you know, I'm not saying that but um, mm. really in the c- um, community interpreting side, uh, it's where it gets real, you know, and um, where there's huge challenges as well. Um, for example, you know, if you look at the, yeah, and like you said, political um, development, of course, always influence interpreting or all language uh, services. And Especially with the refugee crisis and the huge uh, influx of immigration, uh, a lot of countries at the time and even still are struggling when there's suddenly like so many people coming. Uh, for, so the demand for interpreting goes up, like for community interpreting, for example. Yeah, yeah. and they might not have interpreters for those languages.
0: Exactly the language. And at least not the issue. Yeah.
1: Often. Yeah, or not qualified interpreters. and In some cases, even if they want to uh, certify them, there's sometimes not even a test available. So what do you do? You wait a year and don't do anything with those people? No, you can't, you know? You have to provide some access to language. So this is then where it gets really messy.
0: Yeah.
2: There's a whole complexity here about, you know, interpreters can't just defend their own turf. We have to be open to... The situations that are there and actually turn it around from defending your own turf and saying you know it's our way or the highway to saying yes interpreters need to be treated properly yes they need to be paid properly but the way to encourage people to do that is to explain why it should matter to them um to explain why you know yeah it, we understand that you need to get you need might need to pull in a whole ton of uh, phone or remote interpreting with AI technology for a time, but let's show you how you can build your own local capacity. Um, yeah, uh, it's fantastic that you know machine interpreting exists or speech translation exists in some situations, but let's show you how you can integrate that into a workflow so that the stuff that matters is done by people who know how to do it right. And that's for me. That that's cl- client education isn't telling the clients you know you have to do it this way. Client education is. Right, we understand what you're trying to achieve. We're going to work with you here's how we can to help. get you the results that you want. Yeah. yeah, here's how we can help. Here's how we can work with you. And that changes, it changes the game entirely. I think it's a new way of speaking that we've not always been good at doing. You know, we like to slam down rule books. If we could stop that and turn it around to, well, let's learn from our mistakes. And instead of slamming a rule book, open up a microphone and say, let's hear what you have to say first. And we'll work on that basis.
0: Indeed. So it's, it's going to be interesting to watch the, um, the situation in, in Denmark. I don't know if there are any further developments that we need to expect. I don't know. I think, Sarah, you've been looking into this a little bit.
1: Yeah, I've been, I mean, I've been following the debate, you could say, uh, in, in Denmark, and uh, it's still ongoing. Um, but what has definitely already happened is because this uh, huge contract that was centra- centralized and uh, kind of changed the game in, in Denmark, um it's, it's caused a real stir and hundreds of interpreters have uh, protested and said they're not going to work with a new provider that has been chosen. Um, and in turn, this has already led to um, court cases getting adjourned. And in one case, apparently even a shoplifter had to be let go by the police because no interpreter was available. So... Um, it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy um, to me it shows kind of two things On the one how how quickly uh, this whole situation can change like one big decision by the government um, yep. or by the provider and it affects the interpreters but it also shows how much the interpreters are in the end affecting um like all these different scenarios for example like uh, court cases Uh, same happened in the uk a few years ago as we know um when a a few thousand court cases had to be adjourned and in the end um, it's not exactly like they call it like a false economy as well because it was intended as cost savings but in the end cost a lot more because (laughs) all of when all these court cases have to be uh, redone that costs a lot of money of course um yeah so i find it odd that for for a while i think um things can work out and interpreters take a lot if they have to um but at some point it comes back around and you know when you join forces then um because in the end it has to be it has to be livable right interpreters have to be able to at least live with their wages and in the end the, the it's like this fine line trying to find the middle um where you can meet people's demands and have a living for yourself and protect your conditions. So it's finding that right balance and yeah, client education is key to that, I think.
3: Right, absolutely.
0: So I guess, yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on how that situation develops. But yeah, it's not looking good, I think, at the moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing which was looking bad and seems to be getting better is we had those terrible cases of acoustic shock in Canada and it's a horrible event. But what's come out of that is now, I think, a greater awareness amongst interpreters that we can't take this stuff for granted. Um, And I've seen, I know you're saying, Alex, I've seen it as well, colleagues buying more and more kind of sound limiter devices. I think that's great to see.
3: I actually got in touch with my equipment provider because I was in contact on Twitter with a colleague of ours and just kind of was inquiring how all of that stuff worked because that was really interesting to me. And then he was saying that basically just reduces the overall volume of your interpreting input, which logically also increases the peaks you have because if everything is lower, the peaks will be lower too. Mm -hmm. So... In that context, I was thinking, well, then kind of what's the point? Why don't I just turn down the volume? Because I, I was wondering, like, so so, why would I buy this? And I do want to buy this. I do want a limiter. I want like a tiny limiter, which prevents any of the peaks of happening. Yeah. And yeah, just plug it into my thingamajig. <laughs> my interpreting thingamajig. Yeah,
0: the thingamajig. Exactly. Do you want yeah, to speak to this, Jonathan, as the, the resident... Audio sound guy.
2: Like, I think th- th- I think both of us are radio, resident audio people. I think there should be limiters that literally just cut off peaks, because the problem is, is that if you have a device that just reduces volume, then all the interpreter is going to do is they're going to turn their volume back up.
3: Exactly.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's kind of the problem that you described, like, and we probably yes. have to say what. What a peak yeah, yeah, yeah. is. So um, usually, of course, you can you can sort of adjust your volume and, and adjust how loudly you want to hear the the speaker. But then you have things like people tapping on the mic, um, feedback when the headphones come too close to the mic, and then you get loud noises, which is basically what we mean when we say uh, a
2: peak. If the sound's set up well, then it should be difficult. To do that, unless someone does something daft like screaming down the mic, mm. um, but there should be ways on most sound setups. Um, certainly, like modern sound equipment should be able to to take out some of that. Some of it's harder to take out, like um, what people call feedback. That's harder, but they're, they're from what I understood that these um, devices were there to basically spot peaks in the signal and just cut them. Yeah. Um, right. So. But- That's what they should be doing. The ones that just turn it down shouldn't be used.
0: And some some of the tech is also built into some of the consoles, as far as I understand. So some of the consoles have a limiter and um, even a little light that indicates if there's a peak, um, which gets cut down. So...
3: And a lot of the tech guys actually have, if it's not already built into your equipment, a lot of the guys will actually have it in their own consoles. Mm. A lot of the tech yeah. guys will have it in their own consoles, so they will basically pre-filter your incoming sound. Mm-hmm. But what I was really curious, and if you have anything like this, please comment at hello at troubleturps.com. Um I really want that thing that our our friend had on Twitter, which is basically just like this little tiny thing, which you plug into the aux um, input on the console side, where basically your headphone would go in usually, and then you plug it into your headphones, and then that little teeny tiny thing, it's not, I mean, according to the pictures, it's not much bigger than... I don't know, a box of matches.
0: Yeah, it looks like a little mp3 player, it, basically. It,
3: it, it kind of looks like a tiny mp3 yeah. player. Like, that thing would prevent that, mm-hmm. in theory. I've... I googled for half a day, I couldn't really find anything, but then I might have also been quite distracted, so maybe I didn't look for the right <laughs> thing.
0: Were you actually interpreting at the same time? the right time? avenues. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I might have been interpreting at the same time. Who knows? who knows? Who
2: who Who is to say? Who knows? The sound providers that I work with, who I'm not going to mention because they're great, but, you know, uh, we, we don't take paid advertisements yet. The sound providers I, I work with, in his words, he said, the best sound in the room should be in the interpreter's ears. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
2: So so get people to know what they're doing, yeah. and you should. that stuff should be pre-filtered for you if they know what they're doing.
0: But, I mean, sometimes you don't really have any control about the, the sound guy or the sound girl and how they're setting up the, the system. So some, some colleagues have been sort of resorting to, to buying these smaller devices. And as far as I can tell, there are basically two different companies or two different kinds of um, outfits that offer these things. So there is... Um, Hang on, I wrote this down here. So there's limit ear and adapt ear. And limit ear, they actually have um, sort of different kinds of devices. Some are a bit smaller, others are a little bit bigger. Um, And some of them sort of will analyze the audio that they process during the day and sort of will make sure that you don't have too much exposure in terms of overall volume and just the amount of sound that gets to your ear, I guess. And, um, Adapt ear, I think they they just have one um, product, and I think they also have to be sort of adapted to the kind of headphones that you use. So it's still a little bit early days for this. It's not really um, a product that you just buy and use. There's a little bit of, of preparation involved, as far as I can tell. But um, it seems to be something that. Um, might be a good investment, especially if you are an interpreter working with different kind of tech companies and maybe with l- less control of the whole sound and everything. So maybe that's oh, yeah, maybe that's totally. something that we we'll get back to. I mean, we'll we'll put a few links in the show notes about the whole incident um, or yes. the incidents that we had in Canada at the with our colleagues from the translation bureau. And we'll put in a link about the follow-up that um, Aik have done um, about this. Um, It's definitely something that we're going to watch next year.
3: Absolutely. This could be really, really interesting.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is going to run and run. And it's something that we need to to keep our eyes on. I think that's going to be a bigger thing. And perhaps there's a hidden danger that we haven't come across. Talking about hidden dangers, Sarah, you were really big on a story coming out of California about um, the hiring and the kind of contracts that interpreters are on there.
1: Well, I personally haven't written about it, uh, but it's a hot topic in uh, the interpreting uh, industry at the moment because it's somewhat of a um, a game changer, and it's uh, really ruffled a lot of feathers that uh, the the classification of uh, like the the change in the like gig economy law in California, basically, and that interpreters and translators as well want to be exempt from this law. Um, because while, you know, the, the law technically is um, is great for the protection of people working in the gig economy, except that we are not people who work in the gig economy <laughs> and uh, that by, you know, that most of us uh, work as freelancers or we're our own entrepreneurs and that this would actually like, w- this would cause a problem or will cause a problem for both sides the individual interpreters as well as the uh, LSPs working with interpreters, you um, because it will just change the, the whole game of the business for everyone. Um, so I think they're right. still seeking uh, a change to the law. But at the moment, I think it only just got a, like, you know, approved and uh, the exemption was rejected, even though some other yeah. um, industries were exempt, like hairdressers, for example.
0: Yeah I think the initial the initial idea was to um to help out the drivers that drive for Uber and Lyft and these kind of uh ride hailing companies which I think yeah. is a noble goal in and of itself but it's um exactly. I, I haven't looked at it too much and we should probably do an episode about that next year um but it it looks like the they went a little bit too far with um, the whole project. There are some exemptions for for some um, professions, but it's it's apparently a really difficult issue for freelance interpreters, um, also for truck drivers who are often independent contractors. So um, it seems to have a lot of side effects, and um, yeah. So it's it, I think it was passed by the. By the uh, whatever they call it, I don't even know. It's the <laughs> legislature, and, American people. Yeah, it was, it was signed into law by the governor, so it's definitely um, coming into force apparently. But the question is, if if anything can be sort of saved or salvaged from this, yeah.
2: Well, it, it does come back to, and I hate to say it comes back to the question of interpreting PR, that if people don't understand the nature of yeah. that job, they're not going to legislate for it very well. And so this is why whenever people say, you know, we should get legal protection of status for interpreters, I say, well, there are a number of stages first before we can even think about that. Mm. And if this law is anything to go by, perhaps we should kind of come back to square one and say we should help people understand what it is we do. Then we can talk about the other stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. It for me, also comes back around to sort of you know client education, or just in general getting the word out a bit more uh, to people who aren't part of this industry. To because yeah, it sounds like the law was well intended for people uh, who genuinely work in the gig yeah, economy, yeah. but uh, it doesn't work out well in our uh, industry for anyone. <laughs> so.
3: But then also, I think for like legislators, the the lines might be very difficult to distinguished you know what i mean yeah i think it's not an easy call to make between a freelancer who works on a conference to conference base and then an uber driver who works on a drive to drive base i don't think legislatively speaking that's necessarily the most easiest thing to distinguish so i i do agree that it's like a very difficult thing to get right but i do think I wouldn't want to be in their shoes trying to legislate this. <laughs> Do you know that's what I mean? That's a
0: fair point, yeah, but with the one article, I um, in, in one article, I read several today, one article mentioned that basically, the, if you look at the exemptions that they got across for this um, bill, is that the exemptions were all approved for industries that have a very strong lobby. And interpreting just doesn't have that. Right, so
3: well, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> it's not a, basically yeah. tough luck. So that's not great. Yeah. No, well, but then that's just a, I mean, if if your law depends on strong external lobbies to be a good comprehensive law, it's a bad law.
0: Welcome to politics.
1: Well, yeah, that's politics. Exactly. I, well, you know,
3: yeah, And also, it's America, so we, nobody's employed there, so we can say this. Well,
1: lots of our colleagues are employed there, so, you know, but um, also... Well, if, nobody
3: on the podcast, true, I mean, immediately right here, so... No, but
1: also the thing is, I mean, for now, it's affecting California, but it's potentially going to go uh, on to other states as well, so this could become mm-hmm. an even bigger issue. Right. Uh, so, ideally, it's time to nip it in the bud immediately.
2: I was also thinking about, um, and we wanted to to say something. We we like doing our years in review, but we also like to think about what's next. For me, what's next is actually Let's
0: uh, get out the crystal ball.
2: Well, we'll also one of the big topics that's coming up, which Sarah and I agree on. I have a book out called "Interpreters Versus Machines," no, way. available in all good bookstores by December twenty second, <laughs> just, a- just in a- time, a- time so for Christmas just in time for Christmas, can I just say this to people, okay? The best way to get the book, uh, there will be a Routledge link In the show notes, but if you can pre-order the book from your local, you know, physical bookshop, they'll pre-order it with the ISBN number. Fine, it's good for your local bookshop because it keeps them going. It's good for interpreting because they might start stocking interpreting books on their bookshelves, and it's good for the author as well because when your book is seen physically, more people buy it. Also, pre-orders count more than count a whole lot more than orders after the time for charts and stuff. So if you but. All this to say that I think machine interpreting. What Amazon?
0: I didn't say anything.
2: I, I get the same anyway. No, I get the same money anyway. But pre-orders or what charts are counted? Uh, what count for yeah, charts? But all this to say that that one of the big topics coming up, and I think Sarah and I both agree on this, is machine interpreting, which is really speech translation. We might get onto translator on later. It's a thing. It exists. And I liked Sarah's point at Geneva about remote interpreting, which applies here. For the sake of language access, it's probably necessary, but it does pose some real issues for professional interpreters that I think we need to start facing properly, which is why I wrote the book
1: well I think it's also yeah. <laughs> important to make a distinction again between you know remote interpreting and machine interpreting that are not the same mm. thing both I think Definitely will be not. or right. are already a lot of topics that conflate have conflate the two yeah um, both I think are relevant and really important topics at the moment because they are both coming they're actually already here on some level uh remote more so than machine interpreting Um but yeah they're not they're not the same thing so for remote still involves uh, people whereas machine machine interpreting doesn't um but i i do like in, in my opinion uh, none of this will replace uh, the traditional interpreting or that the machines won't replace replace interpreters but both cases both types can be used to really like expand the interpreting market and reach um really remote locations like we might sometimes forget about you know what the situations are like in other countries as well in some countries you have really really remote villages and you just don't have the uh, on-site interpreters there you might have three interpreters for this one specific uh, language requirement in the entire country Uh, or they're flying people in from completely like crazy far away places and so why not if you know remote interpreting doesn't need to be uh, unprofessional. It can be done really well. It doesn't, like, it's not always done well, totally. but it yeah. can be done well. So, I think there's also that level, you know, that needs to be discussed. Um, and yeah, machine interpreting, for it's like, for example, huge in in Asia, no surprise. Uh, China and Japan, uh, Japan especially, like, they have these little handheld devices that are booming there right now. And because Japan is a largely mo- monolingual um, uh, country. And um, so, th- like everyday people use it in uh, shops and taxis and stuff like that now to communicate with, with tourists, for example. And, you know, those people wouldn't be able to afford interpreters for just being honest, you know. Um, so it can be useful to just bridge that gap for those everyday kind of super, super basic communication. And I don't think that that is a threat to interpreters at all because, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to be there in yeah. other cases anyway, you know.
2: I think that the biggest development for me and I'm still waiting for them to publish independent data on it is the Google Translator Tron I didn't get to write about it in the book because it came out too late, there will be videos alongside the books where I do talk about it, but basically their idea is to skip the usual step in speech translation where you turn someone's words into text and then you machine translate them and then you turn the text back into words. The idea of Translator Tron is that you completely change it and you just go from sound to sound without any intermediate step of turning it into text. They've done it because they think that they can, by doing that they can relay someone's tone of voice and vocal patterns in another language. The problem with that is that anyone who's interpreted between, say, English and French knows that tone of voice doesn't mean the same in English as it does in French. Hmm. Uh, What we use intonation for in English and French, you use sentence structure for. So it really shows that they're not thinking like linguists, they're just thinking, you know, how can we make you sound the same in, in other languages, which you shouldn't do anyway. But that says something to us about their awareness of what language is and what we do.
3: Right. But then on the flip side, I was just talking to a colleague who bought the Google Pixel 4 with a new recorder app. And he was actually saying that no matter the speaker, no matter the, um, the, the presentation, he was able to record speech-to-text with a 98% accuracy no matter how slurred or how quick or how unclear the speaker was and if this is what you just can do on a regular phone and then this is just speech-to-text you can then do text-to-speech it doesn't have to be 100% accurate it just has to be fine yeah
0: neither are we to be honest (laughs)
1: yeah Yeah, that's the other point but
3: yeah we don't have to be perfect we just have to be different right yes we have a different quality threshold yes i think Uh, i don't know sarah what what you were gonna say
1: sorry no but uh yeah humans aren't perfect either but uh, humans still have a genuine cognitive understanding of what's going on and we have the um you know aspects that machines can't we have certain elements that machines will not be able to do in the near future anyway, something, you know, like right. where it comes to our human values. Uh, but that exactly. again, I don't think, to me, it doesn't need to be human versus machines. It's just more of an extension, you know, like Yuri said, like it doesn't need to be uh, a threat. There can be other use cases.
3: At the moment, it's all pitched in that either-or situation, right? Like at the moment, it's either Google is going to replace you or... It's not. Well, like it's it's not anything in the sense that like I mean like I I would love to to get to that point where we can get support from Google or support from well, let's be honest. It's probably going to be Google. Let's, let's.
1: Well, that's that's other. That's another use case. Again, uh, some people are more like protect, um, predicting this kind of you know uh, scenario. That and I think that is super realistic and almost there already that you just as an interpreter will be working more with machines as well, um, so that you, right. for yeah, example, yeah. get those uh, transcripts along uh, as you're interpreting, if, and you can look at them if you want. You know, to have that assistance, yeah. um, stuff like that. But I also think it's time, you know, with all of those trends, um yeah, there might be people everyone has been shouting for sen- for centuries that the machines will replace humans on not just in interpreting and in, in all sorts of industries. But uh, you know, it's kind of up to us to maybe not panic and give in to the hype, but more to like educate ourselves and see you know what it is actually all about or how can it be used because, you know, um it is making significant strides but that doesn't need to mean that we're going to be replaced
2: right i feel like someone's been reading the abstract been reading the chapter abstracts that i sent to my publisher no, but, wait where where i would say that we have to be careful and this again comes back to pr i think we're going to do a pr episode in 2020 um is that there was a case recently with Google Translate being used to vet refugees. And where the danger lies is where the claims of these companies, many of them either hyperinflated or using test metrics that aren't relevant, Um, when their claims are swallowed whole by people who are already under price and time pressure, who make decisions that could affect people's lives, then as an industry we do have a problem. I absolutely agree we need to be working with them. We shouldn't be seeing it as a fight. In fact, that's one of the conclusions that I come to in the book. Spoiler alert. But I think what where it where there is a fight and where it is human versus machine and where we do need to be a bit stronger is we need to be explaining that it's not fair to use unsuitable tools in a situation where the use of those tools could rob people of freedom or life. Absolutely. And that's where we need to look at how do we pitch interpreting better, how do we sell interpreting better, so that the natural position of clients is to come to humans rather than risking a machine. And that's a challenge for us, not for them.
1: Well, I think anything high stakes like that in the hospital and courts or you know, immigration, all that kind of stuff, if you're as the, um, if someone in politics makes a decision to use a machine for that, then that is highly irresponsible. So I think that even goes to a completely different level. Uh, for the moment, yeah, machine interpreting is making significant strides. But as I said, for like basic stuff, yeah, like we we're talking about, maybe the cab driver, or the shopkeeper, or maybe there's other use cases as well where it can be a little bit higher. But I wouldn't use this in uh, in the hospital or in the court where you know, yeah, people's lives are hanging in the balance. That's just irresponsible. And I think we're, I think we're far away from that because uh, I can't see that being legal anytime soon.
2: What's legal and what's done are sadly two different things at times. Well, that's um, true. Yes.
1: So, so moving on.
2: What is next for Troublesome Terps in 2020? We have a lot of episode ideas lined up. First
0: episode is already at least recorded. It's not yes. produced yet, but it's already recorded. So we have January covered, <laughs> and after January we have a lot, lot of good ideas, and we'll have to decide on what, well, what we're going to get to first. And um, but we're certainly not running out of ideas and possible guests and uh, things like that. So.
3: And even if we are, just let us know at hello, hello at trouble.com. <laughs> like,
0: so,
2: like and subscribe. <laughs> but one thing that, that I do think is is amazing and is maybe a good way to close the show is a tribute to um to Sarah for, for coming onto the show and becoming our fourth host. That's fantastic. A tribute to the audience for continually listening. But also I would say a tribute to the richness of interpreting itself that when we started this, I'm sure we've said this before when we started this, we didn't know how long it would run for. I think the two Alexis and I thought maybe we would get what six months a year. Speak for we've, yourself <laughs> we no but, but but we we thought the ideas would probably dry up. We didn't realize there was enough of a that the the amount of ideas was so great that you know we're we're now into what our fourth year. And we still haven't even there's still stuff that we haven't even touched. Mm, and true. I think that's a tri- that's a tribute to the richness of interpreting that, you know, everyone starts a project and thinks, you know, at what point am I gonna run out of ideas? And actually, I think we're nowhere near that. And now we've got a whole new fount of ideas to come in as well. I think we could be we, we could we could do an episode every week and still not run out of ideas. Oh God, not that no. we're going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> not that
3: we're gonna do that's that. That's nice. <laughs> not not gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> that's true but yeah
1: that's I agree nice like the, yeah. The, the more you look into it you know the more you realize how much you haven't seen yet or talked about yet
0: and I I think I'd, I'd also encourage our lovely listeners to um, just make make themselves heard a little bit more and you know say what what you want to hear, what you liked about the show, what you didn't like about the show, because, I mean, we're doing this for us. Yeah, that's that's one part of it, but we're also doing it for you, so, you know, could be more of a two-way street if that's a word. <laughs>
1: Collaborative approach.
3: So do get in touch on Twitter or hello at com. This will be the last
2: thing I
3: say. <laughs> I dare you. Yeah, I wonder.
2: I'm I'm really pleased at how well the podcast has been received, and I'm amazed at how it's just it's it's exceeded everything that I expected of it. I think we can all agree to
3: that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amen. I don't think that's a controversial statement. That's in That's not controversial
2: at all. Anyway. I have to shift <laughs> it. I
0: have some sleeping to do. Oh, guys, I'm really tired.
3: I uh, yeah, it's 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 quite late. But anyone's, I think you're speaking for all of us. Sorry, go ahead.
0: No,
1: you go ahead. No, I don't
0: know. I was just no, gonna you say go this. ahead.
3: <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to know if if um